0: Sarah is one of the most respected women in the Hebrew tradition. She is Sarai when we first meet her in Genesis chapter 12. Her name is later changed to Sarah, and her husband Abram has his name changed to Abraham as part of the covenant with God. It's from this husband and wife that two of the world's great peoples, the Jews and the Arabs, will come to be. In all of Judaism, only Moshe, Moses, is more revered. Among the biblical matriarchs, Sarah has attained legendary status in three of the world's religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Yet, there is a curious event in the Bible where Sarah plots to have her husband banish and thereby murder her surrogate son and his mother as Sarah has what seems to be a fit of irrational, murderous rage. Traditions are conflicting. Some have suggested that Sarah was a paranoid schizophrenic afraid of her slave and afraid of her son. Others have suggested that she just could not let go of her anger at Hagar, her slave, for showing her disrespect when Hagar got pregnant with Abraham's son. And so, years later, she used the slightest excuse to rid herself of this slave that had so wounded her pride. One suggestion is that she was simply a jealous and greedy woman that wanted to kill rather than risk having her husband's wealth, could any child but hers. That certainly tracks with a lot of what we see today. People have certainly killed for less, but some have even gone so far as to suggest the offense for which Sarah wants Ishmael and his mother consigned to death in the desert is so minor that Sarah must have been a violent, murderous psychopath or sociopath. But is there another possibility? Is it possible that Sarah saw something, something so profoundly disturbing and chilling that her demand that the boy and his mother be turned out to die was fully justifiable? Welcome to Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robison, your guide through the controversies, history, and debates surrounding the Bible. If you enjoy Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies, don't forget to hit that like button or subscribe, and please tell your friends about the podcast. When we're dealing with, with Abraham, you always have to kind of take a moment to pause because Abraham does some really interesting things. He, he, he passes his wife off as his sister several times. Um, his son Isak does the same thing. And we'll talk about those episodes tonight. But we, we learned some interesting things though uh, from the text. So tonight's episode, while it's going to be an SE episode, it's also going to have to be a little PG because we're going to have to deal with some serious issues tonight. You're, you're going to have to decide if you want your kids to hear the episode because what we're going to hear about tonight are allegations of both incest and sexual abuse in the Bible. So decide whether or not you want your kids to hear this episode and continue listening probably when they're not around. So tonight we're going to be looking at Sarah, specifically why Sarah wanted Ishmael dead. But before we get into that, We're going to have to set the stage and get the context and deal with a few other things that help shed light on Sarah and on some of the vocabulary in the Bible that we need to understand. And as you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, I'm very big on context. Most issues that we run across in the Bible make a lot more sense if you understand the context. And tonight's going to be no exception to that rule. So first let's deal with who Sarah is. Sarai, as we first know her, is the wife of Abram. We know little about her before she appears in Genesis chapter 12. Now one thing we need to deal with off the bat is incest because that's going to come into play very quickly. Incest was widely practiced in antiquity the Egyptian royal families and wealthy families practiced incest with disturbing regularity. Property in Egypt was passed down maternal lines, not paternal lines. So property ownership was not something the man enjoyed. Men married women of property in Egypt, whereas in Western society, women would marry men of property. It's just the opposite. And so property went from mother to daughter in Egypt. So brothers would often marry their sisters to keep the family fortune in the family. Fathers, too, upon the death of their wives, would often marry their eldest daughter for the same reason. The pharaohs also married siblings because of their identification with the god and goddess Osiris and Isis, the sibling lovers of the Egyptian pantheon. It wasn't just the Egyptians that got into this whole incest thing, though. The Canaanites, the Canaanite god Baal, was married to his sister Anat. And so what we see is it's not until Levitical law is established under Moshe that incest is outright banned. Lot and his daughters produce Moab in incest. And this results in the Moabite people. And more about them in a later episode because there's some interesting things about the Moabites. Uh, God did not like Moab. He even referred to Moab once as his wash basin. And we'll get into... uh, a little bit about Moab because they they come into play in several places in the Bible. And we'll also have interesting discussions about something called the lion men of Moab and what they actually were or might have been. But that'll be a later episode. But what's more interesting and disturbing is that Abram had apparently engaged in incest with Sarai. What? What? Well, apparently they had the same daddy. But before we get into the convoluted relationship there, we need to discuss why all of this is so shocking to people today. You see, it stems from a long tradition of sweeping things under the proverbial rug. Yeah, we need to take off the blinders for a bit and take in the scenery surrounding what we are not taught in church. And as strange as that may sound, there's a great deal to see when it comes to how the Bible gets taught. Not only is there steamy, disturbing, and downright bizarre stuff that goes on with the people of the Bible that shows them to be every bit as human as we are in the modern age, but frankly, characters of the Bible are less like your average Joe today and more like the cast of a Jerry Springer episode. So let's get the scenery set here. But to start, we don't need to delve into the scenery around Abram and Sarai, but the scenery first around the censorship of the Word of God. Yeah. Churches censor the Word of God. Now, I'm going to tell you, you should go to church. I'm not saying that you should not. We all need to go to church and we all need to have that church community. And I highly encourage people to go to church. But you should read the word of God for yourself, not take stock in what a minister tells you or what a Sunday school teacher tells you. And yes, I'm including myself in that too. Don't take my word for things. Check it out for yourself. Remember that great admonition. Receive the word with all openness of heart, but search the scriptures daily to see if that thing be so. So let's talk about the Bible as a censored text. The Bible is filled with, frankly, lurid stories. It deals, frankly, despite linguistic euphemisms in the Hebrew, with sex, murder, adultery, bastard children, abuse, and a whole host of sins that plague humanity. God is blunt. God, who created sex, has zero embarrassment about sex. But it's supposed to be done in a pure and righteous way. When people don't do it in the right way or they do it with people they shouldn't be doing it with, God tends to deal with the situation rather bluntly. People though, not so much. Just as an example, the prayer service in Judaism involves reading the Torah, which is the five books of Moses, and selected other scriptures from the Hebrew Bible. Now. Hebrew for Jews was and still is, much like Latin is for Catholics. It's a lot of wah 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 wah-wah, like the teachers in the in the peanuts, you know, the Charlie Brown cartoons. The scriptures needed to be translated into a language the congregation could understand. Now in the Jewish tradition, the Torah is read out aloud to the congregation, word by word, in a cycle that lasts one year and then starts over. But, long ago, the priests and rabbis set down very strict rules that were expressly designed to prevent their congregations from hearing certain passages. Does that come up as a shock to you? Don't say anything yet. You're going to find out in a little bit Christians are just as bad. One way... That the, that the Hebrew scholars and rabbis would sort of conceal things was to read a passage in the Hebrew which the congregation really couldn't understand but not read certain parts of it in the common language. Among those forbidden stories treated this way is the story of the seduction of Jacob's concubine, Bilcha, by his son Reuben. You see, according to tradition, when someone lies with the concubine of a king, they're establishing themselves in the king's bed, and it's a, show, it's a way to show that he's taken the throne. And so when Reuben seduces his father's concubine, some traditions view that as an attempt by Reuben to supplant Jacob. Jacob. Well whatever the motivation of Reuben, he's not punished for it outright. It takes a little while. And what you find is is that if you read Genesis chapter 35 and chapter 49, you see what happens and you see that Jacob then cuts Reuben out of the will. A similar and much more blatant use of sex with concubines is found in second kingdoms or second samuel chapter 16 specifically verse 22 set the stage there absalom son of david is well he's a bit of a bad boy and he is in revolt and he actually drives his father out of jerusalem and what happens is is david takes his house out of jerusalem but he leaves some of his concubines behind to take care of the palace, not thinking that his son would do anything. Well, then in verse 22, what we find out is is Absalom goes up to the roof of the palace and spreads out a tent. And what it says is this, and they spread out a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went to his father's concubines before the eyes of all Israel. Now let me explain what that meant. Oh, he put up a tent and people saw the concubines go in and then they see Absalom go in and so everybody kind of knows what's happening. No, that's not what it meant. What it meant was is they put what we, would, what we might call a, uh, a canopy. It's basically a tent either without walls or with the walls of the tent drawn back. What Absalom does is he has a public orgy with his father's concubines on the roof with a canopy overhead for shade, but he does it in full view of everybody in the town. That's what it meant by Absalom went to his father's concubines before the eyes of all Israel. It was more than just going in a tent, oh the concubines went in there, oh and then Absalom goes in there, oh uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we all know what's happening. No, no, no. He had the either the walls were not there and it was just a basically like a big tarp on a uh, you know on a on several posts, what we would call a canopy, or it was a tent with the walls pulled back so that everyone could see him having sex with his father's concubines this was a blatant act that he did okay this is another one of those incidences that you can't talk about in the Jewish synagogue you may read it in the Hebrew but you don't translate it even beloved King David's exploits are banned from being read aloud in anything but the Hebrew as the tale of his murder of his loyal servant and the taking of his wife, you know Uriah and Bathsheba, and the fathering of a bastard child it's, is considered too racy for general discussion in the synagogue. They even edit that out. Some even more disturbing could not be read out aloud at all, even in the Hebrew, such as the rape of David's daughter Tamar by her crazed brother Amnon. Now, just in case you think that the Jewish sages were bad for editing the Word of God, like I said, Christians aren't much better. Bishop Porteus in the 1700s produced an index of the Bible which told what was acceptable for lay people to hear. This what's called Portusian Index, declared half of the Hebrew Bible and part of the Second Testament taboo and too hot for the lay people to listen to. Now the term uh, bowlerization is a pejorative term for the practice particularly of the removing of quote-unquote lewd material from books The term derives from Thomas Bowdler's 1818 edition of William Shakespeare's plays where he he reworked them in ways that he felt was more suitable for women and children. It's sort of interesting that Bowdler seems to have relatives all over the place throughout history. One Bowdlerist was so brazen that she omitted half the Bible and added her own commentary to it. I guess she had a lot to say because in the late 1700s in America, Mrs. Sarah Kirby Tremor published a six-volume version of the Bible with over half of the Bible text removed and the rest of the six volumes filled with her commentary. Hmm. She's going to edit the Word of God and put in six, you know, five and a half volumes of, of her commentary in its place? That's that's pretty brazen, if you ask me. It was bad, though, in antiquity, too. It was just as bad. Some sages and scribes were so appalled by the stories in the scriptures that they would leave out passages they found objectionable or too awkward to deal with. Famously, Marcion, who desperately wanted to be regarded as a great church father, was so reviled for his deleting parts of the Scripture that he disagreed with that when another of the church fathers saw him, Marcion came up to him and said, Don't you know me? Don't you know who I am? And the church father famously responded, Yes, you're the one begotten son of Satan. One of the notable quotes about Marcion was shame on Marcion's eraser. Well, Marcion unfortunately wasn't alone. Some of these redactions can be found in some of the earliest translations of the Hebrew Bible into Greek or Aramaic. The translators that worked on the Aramaic version of the scriptures seem to think it completely acceptable to sort of, as we would say today, tweak the Word of God, when it came to the father in law or bridegroom of blood incident, we find in Exodus 4 24 through 26. Still, others totally omit those three problematic verses from their translations altogether. I did a whole episode on that, a three hour episode on it, and people just cut it out. In fact, get your antacids ready because this is going to give you heartburn. One rewritten version of the biblical narrative that is a stark attempt to omit any unpleasantness actually makes it into the modern version of the scriptures today. The books of Chronicles completely whitewash the story of King David expunging most of his excesses and crimes whereas Samuel or the books of Samuel because remember in the the Dead Sea Scrolls the two books of Samuel are, are one book also referred to as the first and second books of kingdoms in the Septuagint right? first kingdoms and second kingdoms they're pretty brutally honest about David his sins and his failings but Chronicles Rewrites history Not only rewriting The history of Elhanan Slaying a second giant named Goliath And trying to make it a brother of Goliath Trying to harmonize things But as far as the whole Bathsheba adultery And murder of Uriah thing In Chronicles It never happened It's not there What's more surprising for many Christians to learn is that in both Judaism and Christianity, there's been a serious and curious approach to biblical stories that are racy or disturbing. The tradition is marked by pronounced variance in what's written and what's said. That's interesting. The Masoretes take this to a very interesting extreme going so far as to identify certain words that were to be read aloud differently than they actually were written in the text one example is Deuteronomy 28 verse 30 what the text actually says is this you'll be engaged to a woman but another man will rape her you'll build a house but you will not live in it You will plant a vineyard, but you will not harvest it." The Hebrew clearly uses the word for ravish or rape, but the Masoretes had instructions that when read, the word that should be used was the word for recline. And in fact, you'll even find that in some modern English translations today it will say you'll be engaged to a woman but another man will recline her. Well that's not what the Hebrew says. It actually uses the word for rape. Translators also use their own agendas to edit the Word of God. We actually discussed in the bridegroom of blood incident, translators added the name of Moses to the narrative of the angel or God trying to kill someone in Moshe's party. But Moshe's never actually named in the passage, neither in the Septuagint nor in the Masoretic. As I mentioned before, Chronicles tries to harmonize the accounts of first kingdoms and second kingdoms, or First Samuel and Second Samuel, by changing the name of, Goliath, of the Goliath slain by Elchanan to Lami. And by the way, if you don't know where that name came from, it comes from a demonym. What's a demonym? A demonym is the changing of a name to demonstrate that's where someone is from. So I'm from Georgia, so I'm a Georgian, right? Somebody from Florida is a Floridian. Someone from Arkansas is an Arkansan. <laughs> Sorry, gotcha, <you>, Arkansas. <clears throat> I, always give, I always give Arkansas a little a, a little trouble for that because they say, well, the name of our state is Arkansas. Really? Well, what do you call someone from there? Do you call them an Arkansawan? No, it's an Arkansan. Well, an Arkansan is from Arkansas. There you go. But, but anyway, that's. Sorry, I got to pick on Arkansas a little bit. But that's that's a demonym, Okay. We use we use, oftentimes, um, an or some variant of an an ending. Um, you know, Arkansan. Um, Missis, you know, sometimes it's an I like Mississippi becomes Mississippian, Georgian becomes Georgian, Alabama becomes Alabamian, Florida becomes Florid you know, Floridian. Although I like to call them Floridans just to mess with their heads a little bit. But that's how we form it. In Hebrew, a demonym uses the suffix lami. Well, Elhanan was a Bethlehemite. By the way, that's the other way we make a, a a demonym in English. Sometimes we'll use the suffix "-ite", or mite, or, or sometimes even emite. So we don't say Bethleheman, although that would be acceptable in English. We say Bethlehemite. That's another way of making the demonym. But in Hebrew, a Bethlehemite is Bethalami. So what's interesting is is the author of Chronicles harmonizes the accounts of first and second kingdoms or first and second Samuel by taking the fact that Elhanan was a Bet-Halami and uses that suffix to rename Goliath 2.0 as Lami. Some argue, moving on, some argue that one of the grossest translation deceptions comes from Ruth by the way, Moabite, there's an instance where we get a Moabite involved, Uh, when she goes in to uncover the feet of Boaz, some contend that this doesn't mean feet, because as we talked about in one of the episodes, uh, mainly the Bridegroom of Blood episode, feet sometimes is a euphemism for genitals. And so one interpretation is that when she goes in to uncover the feet of Boaz, she's actually uncovering his penis. Others interpret that as literally meaning his feet. Some, however, point to genitals as being the proper way to view the Ruth story because of a Hebrew euphemism that's also used in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. In chapter 3, verse 9, it says, And he said, Who are you? And she said, I am your handmaid, Ruth, and you shall spread your skirt over your handmaid, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Well, for a man to spread his skirt over a woman had two meanings in the Hebrew. One, it meant to offer protection, which is the more innocent meaning. The other meant to get on top, to have sex with her in what we call today the missionary position where the man is on top. And so his skirt is spread over her, meaning his belly, essentially, is over her. So Ruth may have been saying she's willing for him to get on top of her and have sex. That's one interpretation. Well, these kinds of passages, when people see these interpretations, it leads to a lot of censorship. And censorship has been so strong at times that during several periods in history the, S- the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon has actually come very close to being booted from the canon repeatedly. Not just once, not just twice, but multiple times. There has been very strong debate on getting the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs out because of its blatant sexual overtones it's not even undertones there's no undertone there there's no under there at all it's overtones and it is a blatant sexual love poem to a woman so people have fought about the song of solomon so much that one of the ways that the church tried to whitewash this is to claim it's a metaphor for god's love of israel But others argue that that's heresy as it would clearly indicate God's love for Israel is sexual because it's blatant sexual imagery. And most people, I think, can agree that God having a sexual love for Israel is just just plain wrong. It just sounds plain wrong in most Christians and Jews' eyes. So... Sometimes you see that censorship winds up leading to more problems than it solves, right? But censoriousness is an issue. The Bible tells things, well, rather bluntly and as they were. And sometimes the Bible is downright graphic. If you understand the language and the fact that God says this happened and The authors of the Bible taking the divine word of God but they use euphemisms in their culture to get what what God says across. And if you understand that then you can see how the Bible actually tends to be rather graphic at times. So we need to look at the Scripture and see what it says, not what others say it says. And that's one reason in this podcast I like to present the multiple views and I'll do the same thing here. You choose what you want to believe. Unless something just absolutely doesn't make sense, I'm not going to try to take sides. But one thing that we can't argue with is that incest becomes an issue with Abram and Sarai and it needs to be examined. So what's this whole sister thing? Is Sarai... Abram's sister or his wife? Or is she both? Well, no less than three times we see wives passed off as sisters in Genesis. Abram does it twice, once in Egypt and once in Gerar, which we can consider part of Philistia, land of the Philistines, Gerar. In the same area involving the same king, interestingly, Abram's son Isak does the same thing, passing his wife Rebekah off as his sister. Okay, so what's all this about? Well, in Genesis 12, we get the story of Abram going to Egypt and fearing that he'll be killed because his wife is apparently, as they would say in Britain, rather dishy. All right? she's, she's apparently rather fetching. And he's worried that his wife is going to wind up getting him killed because she's a hot mama. And his wife does, in fact, catch the eye of Pharaoh. So he passes her off as his sister. And in Genesis 20, the same thing happens in Gerar with King Abimelech. So Abram's not above using, I guess, a. Well, in this case, it's really a sort of a bad trick. It's not a good trick, it's a bad trick. He's not above using a bad trick twice. In Egypt, Sarai is taken to the harem, by the way, and Pharaoh pays Abram handsomely for his sister. Abram accepts the money and his wife is carted off to the Pharaoh's harem to be one of his wives or concubines. In other words, one of his sex objects. Let's just be honest what a harem was. And God has to step in And God's actually, this is, is, by the way, a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later to Egypt. God sends plagues against Pharaoh until Pharaoh somehow realizes, and we're not exactly clear how he realizes, but somehow he realizes what's going on before actually sleeping with Sarai. And he takes her back to Abram and chastises Abram for nearly letting him commit a grievous sin of sleeping with another man's wife. And then Pharaoh orders Abram out of Egypt. So here's the story. Now there was a famine in the land. This is starting with verse 10 of chapter 12 of Genesis. Okay. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there For the famine was severe in the land. So it came to pass that when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know you are beautiful. Before it will happen when the Egyptians see you, so they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Okay? So he's setting that up. He's saying, You're beautiful. You're a hot mama. And the Egyptians are going to want you, and they're going to kill me to get you. So I'm going to skip down a little bit, and he catches the eye of Pharaoh, or she catches the eye of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, it talks about in verse 15, the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and and commended her to Pharaoh. Then the woman, Sarai, was taken to Pharaoh's house. Now, he, meaning Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep, oxen, donkeys, male and female servants mules and camels. But the Lord, the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife, take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning Abram Abraham, that they send him away with his wife and all he had. So that's what happens in Egypt. So we don't quite know how Pharaoh knows the plagues are connected with Sarai, but he figures it out and he gets mad at Abram and, and throws him out of Egypt because of this deception. The story is similar with Abimelech. Though God doesn't unleash plagues against Abimelech. Instead, God actually comes to Abimelech in a dream and bluntly tells him that if he does this, he's a dead man. So here's chapter 20 of Genesis, and I'm going to start in verse 4. Now, Abimelech has been told that this is Abram's sister and Abimelech's, of course, done the same thing as the, as the Egyptian Pharaoh and he's, he's taken Sarai to be one of his wives. And in verse 4 we pick it up. Now Abimelech had not come near her and he said O Lord, will you destroy an ignorant and, and just nation? Okay, well let me, let me back up because it says in verse 3 But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken for she is a man's wife. And then Abimelech starts praying to the Lord, you know, will you destroy me in, in a, you know, because of my ignorance and destroy my nation because I was ignorant? And what God says is kind of interesting because Abimelech goes on to say, Did he not say she's my sister? And did he not say, or, and did she not say to me, He is my brother? I did this thing with a clean heart or a pure heart, as some translations say. And righteous hands. And then God acknowledges that. He says, And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clean heart, and I spared you that you might not sin against me. Therefore, I did not allow you to touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And if he will pray for you, you shall live. But if you do not return her, rest assured, you shall die, and you and all who are yours. So God says well I didn't let you touch her because I know you did this ignorantly and I know you did this with a with a pure heart but you still you still done wrong and it's interesting that he he tells Abimelech you still done wrong and Abram has to pray for you when it's a that's the the one that has deceived and I'll be honest with you there's been a lot of speculation on this and nobody's got a really good answer for this. Abram's the one who seems to deceive but Abimelech's the one that gets the tongue lashing by God well there's something that's interesting that comes up and we're going to see that well maybe he didn't really deceive Abimelech because what let's go on and read and see what he says Abimelech goes to him and says to Abraham, What possessed you to do this? And in verse 11, Abraham replied, Because I thought surely the worship of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, truly, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not of my mother, and she became my wife. So that's interesting. So what we see is that Abram is the half-brother of Sarai. That's interesting. Scholars and sermonizers have worked well into the night again and again to try to come up with some kind of plausible-sounding arguments to deal with these issues with Abram. On the one hand, it makes Abram sound yella, as we say in the South. He sounds like a total coward in these instances. Many find the conduct of Abram and later Esau to be puzzling at the least and offensively disturbing at worst. Speculations range from Abram being an abject coward to adoption of Sarai by his father upon their marriage, making them married and adoptive siblings. That's not so weird as this you know, was a tradition in some countries that you know, the in-law is adopted by the father as a son or daughter as you know, a way of, of blessing the union. It's largely ceremonial adoption, but in antiquity this also led, you know, led to certain legal rights and, ha- and had some sort of legal weight. So in this view Abram is the brother of Sarai through adoption of Sarai by his father and his husband to Sarai through normal marriage. So that's one view. Detractors of this view point out that Abram specifically tells Abimelech that Sarai is the daughter of my father but not my mother. Proponents of the adoption view answer that by suggesting that it's revealed that Sarai was approved of and adopted by Abram's father. But there was the cliche of strife between daughter-in-law and mother-in-law in this story. And the mother did not approve of Sarai and so didn't adopt her as her daughter. So that's that's one way to answer this as interpretation. A second view that this is a continued deception to try to keep Abimelech from being too mad and killing or imprisoning Abram for the deception may hold water. And so in that view, uh, Abram lies and makes up the half-sister thing because maybe Abimelech is so angry he's worried Abimelech, if he just comes out and says, well, yeah, I totally lied, that Abimelech is going to maybe put him in prison or kill him, for putting him in this situation, and so he, he makes up the half-sister thing as a way to sort of ameliorate or placate Abimelech a little bit. Another view that many sages and rabbis support is that Sarai really is his half-sister, and they take Abram at his word, indicating that there is incest going on with Abram and Sarai, although acceptable incest as as many say that marriage between half siblings was acceptable in ancient Israel, even to the days of David, as Tamar proposes marriage rather than be cast aside and her reputation destroyed after her brother, her half brother Amnon, rapes her in Second Kingdoms thirteen or Second Samuel chapter thirteen. A third view involves a nearly lost to history culture. Known as the Hurrians. The Hurrians placed such a high value on the relationship between brothers and sisters that in their culture a man would marry an unrelated woman and adopt her as his sister at the same time, thus becoming married and ceremonially brother and sister. In this view, Abraham and Isaac adopted the Hurrian tradition, making their wives their sisters as well, truly from the cultural sense becoming flesh of one flesh and blood of one blood in the marriage as they were also culturally siblings as well. Whatever the case, there may be reason with the close calls for Sarai to have some bitterness and even some rage in her heart, right? Now, let's jump forward a bit to look, look at Esau for a minute because he does the same thing. And, and what Esau does, because of some vocabulary, is going to have real bearing on Sarai's later rage toward Ishmael. So we're going to look at this. So I want you to listen to what I'm talking about here because it's going to have a real sort of an interpretational effect. It's going, it's going to really alter perceptions on what happened between Sarai and Ishmael. So let's look at Isaac. Now, Isak does the same thing with his wife to the same king. He does it to Abimelech again. Apparently, Abimelech lived for quite a while we're going to look at verse 6 and this is chapter 26 of Genesis once again we see Abram's sort of play played out like father like son Isaac does the same thing as dad does I'm not going to belabor that but what happens this time is Abimelech sees Isaac and Rebekah doing something. This is verse 8 of chapter 26. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of Gerar, looked through a window and saw Esau. And one translation says, showering endearment to Rebekah, his wife. The other says, other, another translation says playing with his wife another says sporting with his wife then Abimelech called Esau and said quite obviously she is your wife so how would you say she is my sister okay so whatever Esau is doing with Rebekah is something that sister and brother wouldn't be doing alright, it's something that's done with a husband and wife. Now, the word that's used there in the Hebrew is tashach. Now, tashach is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It has literal meanings and figurative meanings. It can mean to jest. It can mean to sport, play, toy with. It can mean to mock. There's debate over this because the mocking that some people say Teshuahot referred to was imitation. So you scratch your face, somebody scratches their face. You scratch your nose, they scratch their nose. You you cock your head to the side, they cock their you know you're you're mocking him. You're mocking the person that way. You're doing whatever they do, you do, or vice versa. Whatever you're doing, they're doing. That's one way this is interpreted. The other is to mock and make fun of someone is another way that this is viewed. But that doesn't make sense for this context, certainly. But the fourth definition, the fourth definition does make sense. And that fourth definition means conjugal caress or fondle. You heard that correctly. Conjugal caress or fondle. So, how can I describe this and keep this uh, rather clean? First of all, let's understand that the word fondle today carries the connotation of pedophilia or rape. Okay, Fondling someone is, uh, is resoundingly negative. Now, it, it, it was not always so. The term fondle did not always carry that connotation. Just understand that. But it does today. A more acceptable term between lovers in today's parlance are words like caressing, petting, Frolicking or other such euphemisms, right? But to put it into teenage parlance, Isak was copying a feel of his wife. You know, Groucho Marx famously said, "Whoever called it nicking was a poor judge of anatomy." And what this what this word means has been a subject of much debate. You get several views. One view is that he was kissing his wife, but they use the term for kiss in the Bible. So it doesn't make sense that if he was just kissing his wife, that they would use tasahak instead of kissing. I'll just be honest, but that's one view. Another view is is that he was holding his wife. Maybe they were kissing and he was rubbing her back or something like that. Another more blatant view is is that he had his hand up her shirt and was fondling her breasts. Another view is that he may have had his hand between her legs. Whatever the case, what they are doing is clearly something sexual because it clues Abimelech in immediately that these are husband and wife, not brother and sister. It is clearly something intimate that they're doing. Now understand, this is not sin. Let's state that categorically. Isaac and Rebekah are married. This is just a little sex play between married lovers. Understand, this is not sinful. It's not dirty. It's not wrong, other than the fact that maybe they were doing it with, you know, in view of the window of Abimelech. But we don't know how that was. They may have been hidden somewhere on the on the roof of a building, and Abimelech was in a you know, in the palace, and looked out of his window and could see right down. We don't know. You know, maybe it was a Bathsheba and David sort of situation there. Uh, you know, being able to view. We don't know. Um, I would like to think that Isaac and Rebekah were trying to be discreet but just failed miserably at it, but we don't know. We do know that they were able to be seen by Abimelech through the window. But it's obviously some heavy petting that's going on here because it tips Abimelech off immediately. Okay? So Isaac and Rebekah got frisky. Another acceptable term to use instead of fondling or groping today between lovers at least. So what does this have to do with the whole thing about Sarah's rage? Strangely, it's got everything to do with it. Rather, the word that's used has everything to do with the reason Sarai wants Ishmael dead. Now let's look at Sarai. Now Sarah, and see why there was a problem with Ishmael. There's two levels of problem here. The first can be found back when she's still Sarai in chapter 16. Sarai is barren and has an Egyptian servant girl which she gives to Abram, saying that he should bed her so they can have children. Now this is a complicated issue And it's one where Abram listens to his wife and takes Hagar as concubine, but it becomes obvious that this is not a union blessed or even really liked by God. But the first problem for Sarai that shows up is that once she gets pregnant, Hagar herself becomes a problem. But what's interesting is that there are two different accounts of what the issue is. Chapter sixteen Genesis chapter sixteen verse one And Sarai, Abraham's wife, did not bear to him, and to her belonged a female slave, an Egyptian, and her name was Hagar, or Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, See now, Yehovah has kept me from bearing. Go in now to my slave girl. Perhaps I may be built up from her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took her slave girl, Hagar, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. All right, verse 4. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And she saw that she had conceived, and her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abram, My injury be upon you. I gave my slave girl into your bosom, and she saw that she had conceived, and I was despised in her eyes. Let Yehovah judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, See, your slave girl is in your hand. Do to her what is good in your eyes. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from before her. And the angel of Yehovah found her by a well of water in the wilderness, by the well in the way of Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's slave girl, where did you come from and where do you go? And she said, I am fleeing from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of Yehovah said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And the angel of Yehovah said to her, I will exceedingly multiply your seed so that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of Yehovah said to her, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yehovah has attended to your affliction. And he shall be a wild ass of a man, and his hand against all and the hand of everyone against him, and he shall live before all his brothers. And she called the name of Yehovah, the one speaking to her, you, a god of vision. For she said, even here I have looked after the one seeing me. Okay. That was Masoretic text. Here is Septuagint. Now Sarah... Abram's wife, was not giving birth for him. She, however, had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, See, the Lord has shut me off from giving birth, so go into my slave girl in order that you may beget children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And after ten years of Abram's living in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her own slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and she saw that she was pregnant, and her mistress was dishonored before her. Notice that. Then Sarah said to Abram, I am being wronged due to you. I have given my slave girl into your bosom. But when she saw that she was pregnant, I was dishonored before her. May God judge between you and me. And it goes on, and the rest is, is rather the same. The point to notice here that's interesting is the difference between the Masoretic and the Septuagint. The Masoretic text says, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And she saw she had conceived, and her mistress was despised in her eyes. So the Masoretic makes it sound like Hagar despised Sarai. The Septuagint says something that sounds different. And he went into Hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she was pregnant and she saw that she was pregnant and her mistress was dishonored before her. So that can be interpreted in two ways. Either Sarai felt dishonored, oh, she conceived, well, now she's the better wife because she can conceive and I can't, and now I feel less than my slave girl. That's one way the Septuagint account can be interpreted. The other is that her mistress was dishonored honored before her in that she viewed her mistress as dishonorable. So you get a slightly different account between the two texts and the Septuagint version objectively can be interpreted in two different ways. And when Sarai goes in verse 5 to Abram, notice what she says in the Masoretic. She says, and Sarai said to Abram, my injury be upon you. I gave my slave girl into your bosom and she, and she saw that she conceived and I was despised in her eyes. Let Yehovah, judge between me and you. In the Septuagint account, it says, Then Sarah said to Abram, I am being wronged due to you. I have given my slave girl into your bosom. But when she saw she was pregnant, I was dishonored before her. It almost reads as, I felt dishonored in her presence. That's one way this is interpreted from the Septuagint account. So just understand that. There's a little bit of a variance there. Another way to interpret that in the Septuagint account is that she she saw me as dishonored. You can interpret it that way. Or that Sarah just felt dishonored. It's a little more ambiguous in the Septuagint account, just to, just to point that out. All right? But one thing to point out, too, is that the Dead Sea Scrolls, Murphy. Murphy goddess. Alright. Th- this passage is missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most scholars believe that the Septuagint is saying the same thing as the Masoretic, that Sarai was dishonored in the eyes of Hagar. Okay? But just to point out that the Septuagint has been interpreted differently. What is interesting, though, is the multiplication of the sin. Hagar despises dominion and sins by despising her mistress. Then we see that Sarai mistreats her slave. Okay? So look at verse... So look at verse 6. It says, But Abram said to Sarai, See, your slave girl is in your hand. Do to her what's good in your eyes. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, meaning Hagar, from before, Septuagint account. But Abram said to Sarah, See, your slave girl is in your hands, treat her as it may please you. And Sarah maltreated her, and she, meaning Hagar, ran from her presence. So, what we see here is that the there's a sin on the part of Hagar for despising dominion. Remember, Jude talks about the marks of apostasy, despising dominion, railing against dignities, right, and defiling the flesh. Hagar despises dominion. She despises her mistress. But Sarai compounds the error by being worthy of being despised because she maltreats her slave, which you're not supposed to do in Hebrew law. And notice that God comes down on Hagar's side a little bit here. Verse 10, And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multitudinously multiply your offspring, and it will not be counted for its multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, See, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and shall call him his name Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your humiliation. That's Septuagint account. So the Lord knows that she was humiliated and maltreated and because of Sarai's sin, God is going to multiply the children of Ishmael into a great people. She's going to, he's going, she's going to be the mother, Hagar, is going to be the mother of a great nation because of Sarai's sin. Because Sarai mistreated her, The woman she despises is going to be the mother of a multitude of people. But what's interesting is is Ishmael is not going to be a blessed nation like it seems at first. Masoretic text says in verse 12, And he shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against all and the hand of everyone against him, and he shall live before all his brothers. Septuagint says he shall be a rustic man. His hands shall be against all and the hands of all against him. And he shall live facing, that term facing means facing adversarially, all his kinfolk. And he shall live facing, in brackets, adversarially, all his kinfolk. Okay? So, he will be contentious and contended with. And he will contend with all, even facing his kin in his contentiousness. So he's even going to fight with his kinfolk. His nation is going to be fighting against their own kin. And we see that today with Israel and the Arabs. The children of Ishmael contend with their own kin all the time. This is a blood curse. This is what's interesting is God blesses the line of Ishmael to be numerous because of the sin of Sarai, but he pronounces a blood curse that they're always going to be in contention and they're going to contend with their own kin. That's interesting. Why does he do that? Well, it may be in preparation for something to come. We're about to get into this. So chapter 21 is where we see things come to a head. Hagar goes back. We don't know if Sarai continues to maltreat her, but she goes back. She humbles herself before her mistress, and they live together for a long time. Ishmael starts growing up. He's estimated to be a teenager. God comes to see Abram, or the angel of the Lord comes to see Abram. We get the prophecy of the coming of Esau. We get later, Esau is born. Esau uh, is almost sacrificed. You know, a little bit later. But right now, we're seeing that Esau has been born, and we're going to see something happen. Right, so, just to recap that chronology, we get. Sarai giving Hagar to Abram. She conceives. Sarai mistreats her. She flees. The angel sends her back and gives her the prophecy that your son is going to be a great many people because you were mistreated by Sarai. But he's going to be a wild man. He's going to be contentious and he's even going to contend with his own kin. Okay? But she goes back. This is a while later. Ishmael's been born. Ishmael's grown up a little bit, and Isaac is born. Isaac's going to be sacrificed to the Lord, although the Lord intervenes and stops it. But he's going to be sacrificed to the Lord a little bit later. But right now we're at a stage where Isaac is very young. He's just getting winged, all right? So he's a toddler. So this is chapter 21, verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, he whom she had borne to Abraham, playing. And she said to Abraham, Drive away this slave girl and her son, for the son of this slave girl shall not inherit with my son with Isaac. That's the Masoretic text. Now this is a shocking turn of events in the Masoretic text because we have no idea what Sarah is upset about. We have no idea from the Masoretic text who Ishmael was interacting with or with whom he was playing, if he was even playing with anyone. It just says he was playing. Now some translations will translate that as mocking, but for that to be mocking, you have to have a direct object. There has to be a target of the mocking. You have to be mimicking someone or deriding someone if it's a a deriding form of mocking. There has to be an object to the mocking. In the Masoretic text, there's no direct object. And most scholars will agree that mocking is not the right translation. That is a mistranslation. Some will say it should be translated as sporting or playing. Okay, kids play. Why is Sarah upset and want, wants this child dead for playing? Because understand what she's asking. She says, drive this slave girl and her son away. What she's doing is she's saying, turn them out into the desert. This is certain death. And Abram knows it. All right. Abraham knows this because it says in verse 11 that the thing was very evil in the eyes of Abraham on account of his son because this was his son and he knew this was either a death sentence or they were going to get captured by some other group and put into slavery. So either way, this is a bad thing. The odds are they'll be killed or they'll die from exposure and having no food and water. This is why, by the way, Abraham stocks him up on supplies trying to find a way to get them through where he's driving them out. He's driving them into the desert, okay? So let's analyze this with Sarah. Even if this is vicious mocking, although the scholars tend to agree that mocking is the wrong translation altogether, but even if this is vicious mocking, who's he mocking? There has to be an object of, of, of the insult, right? But even if he was insulting Isaac, you spank the child. It would have been Abraham's duty to get a to get a rod and discipline the child, not murder the child. Hmm. So that's you know, just, that's ragingly inappropriate on the part of Sarai to say, I want you to throw this kid, kid and his mom out in the desert and let him die because he was, let's just say, mocking my child. Let's make that assumption. We can't really say that for the Masoretic, but it's, it's disproportional anger. Well, most traditions hold that the word means, if it means mocking, then the term mocking is meant in a different context, meaning to feign something, a mock battle, for instance, or imitating someone. All right? So if that, so again, for that to be happening, there has to be an object of the mocking, and we're not given that in the Masoretic text. Hmm. The Hebrew could mean playing, Tasahak could mean playing, But why would Sarah be sent into a murderous rage over a kid playing? It must be said that the lack of an object or person with which Ishmael is interacting is very, very strange. And what we now know is that there are four words which appear in the more ancient texts that were dropped From the Masoretic. The Septuagint. Makes things more plain. Verse 8. And the child grew. And was weaned. And Abram. Made a great feast. The day his son Isaac. Was weaned. And Sarah. Having seen the son of Agar the Egyptian. Who was born to Abram. Playing with her son Isaac. Then she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not inherit with my son Isaac. Okay, so we now know from the Septuagint account, the older account, that Ishmael was interacting with Isaac. Even if he were mocking in a mean way his little brother, it's strange to think that this would send Sarah into a murderous rage so that she would demand they be turned out to be food for the vultures or taken into slavery and despoiled by some strangers in the wild. What's of note, again, is that the word that's translated as playing, sporting, or mocking is actually the Hebrew word tassahat. The same word used to describe what Isaac and Rebekah were doing that tipped off Abimelech that this was his wife and not his sister. It's the same word that can mean groping or fumbling. Thus, if we use that definition so that it's consistent with the next time the word appears we get this translation of the text. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abram made a great feast the day his son Isaac was weaned. And Sarah, having seen the son of Agar the Egyptian, who was born to Abram, fondling Isaac her son. Then she said to Abram, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not inherit with my son Isaac. Note that the next few verses, God comes down on Sarah's side. Sarah intends for them to go out and die, but God does not go that far for the sake of Abraham, but he allows the boy to live and keeps his promise to Hagar to make Ishmael a great nation, but one that will contend with everyone else. Here's verse 11. And the thing was very evil in the eyes of Abraham on account of his son. And God said to Abraham, Let it not be evil in your eyes because of the boy and on account of your slave girl. All that Sarah says to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. And also, I will make a nation of the son of the slave girl, for he is your seed. So, God says, Send him away, send him out in the desert. But I'm going to make a great nation of him because he's your son. But God comes down on the side of Sarah. So, admittedly, this is disturbing. But in this view, that what was happening was that Ishmael was engaging in sexual abuse of his younger brother Isaac, This view makes more sense as to why Sarah flies into a rage and wants them banished into the wilds where they'll most likely die. Some suggest a continued grudge from earlier, as I mentioned before, that Sarah just never could get over Hagar, you know, being disrespectful to her. And maybe she had brooded on it for years and seeing some interaction that she just didn't like, that maybe wasn't improper in a sexual way, but maybe making fun of of Isaac, that gave her the excuse to unleash her pent-up grudge. If that is true, Sarah has to be an Olympic athlete in the sport of grudge-holding because if Hagar followed God's instructions and humbled herself and acted in her proper place, this is years later. So Sarah had to be holding this grudge and holding on to this for years, which would not make Sarah a very good matriarch of the Jewish people. Moreover, Sarah's reaction is profoundly disturbing to the point of bringing question as to whether or not she's a violent sociopath if Ishmael was only playing with Esau, If he's only playing with his little brother, it makes Sarah look like a violent psychopath or sociopath. And Abraham understands too that this banishment is a death sentence. And we're told that Abraham views this banishment as something evil until God tells him to go ahead and do it and that he'll spare the child and his mother. It should be noted also that some scholars point out that only the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate, by the way, and I should have mentioned that, that the Latin Vulgate also retains that extra tidbit of the direct object there, that it was Ishmael doing something with Isaac. All right, The Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate retain the four words that were omitted from the Masoretic text. Some even suggest that the Masoretes were covering up the unpleasantness by omitting the fact that this was an interaction between Ishmael and Isak. Some Jewish scholars have found the notion that there might be an incestuous child molestation going on so distasteful that they made up stories to explain it, resembling the story of William Tell shooting the apple off his own son's head, right? They contend uh, in that tradition that Ishmael would shoot at Isaac and then claim to only be jesting, and this sends Sarah into a justifiable rage as she is concerned that Ishmael will one day kill his brother. But this is nowhere to be found in the text. Just to note, it's just a midrash kind of explanation that the Jewish scholars came up with. Even when the scholars concede that mocking is not a justifiable translation of the Hebrew, they'll not consider anything but the most innocent of alternatives that then must lead us to the conclusion that Sarah is a violent, unhinged, avaricious psychopath willing to murder a woman and a child to get what she wants and more than willing to manipulate her husband into being the heavy for the murder. So if this is innocent play, this is the conclusion we have to draw about Sarah. Whatever the truth is, it must be said that if Sarah is not a murderous psychopath or psychotically paranoid schizophrenic type, then it's plain that Ishmael is doing more than simply mocking or playing with his brother. He is doing something, taking a liberty that Sarah finds too shocking and repulsive to tolerate. So, once again, this is one of those episodes that we see in the Bible where you take the various traditions and you see that there may just be deeper meaning to the text than most people realize. So, what's the right answer? Was Ishmael taunting his his toddler brother and she found that so distasteful she wanted them to be sent out into the desert to die? Was he just playing with him and she's a psychopath? Was he shooting arrows or hurling javelins toward his brother and she's worried that he's going to kill his brother and justifiably at that point wants him gone? Or... Was there something darker, something sinister? Unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know. The rest of the text is rather silent on it, and we have to leave it to speculation. But it's one that bears consideration. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robinson. May the peace of Yeshua go with you. May He make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord bless and keep you. And may the Lord God bless you and give you peace. Until next time, good night.